I would like to say uh, good morning to you all. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm also one of the pastors here. And today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1. I'll give you a minute to find the book of Lamentations. It may not be the easiest one to find, although if you find Jeremiah, which is a big book, just go right after Jeremiah. You'll find Lamentations following the big book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Uh, but no shame if you have to use the table of contents in your Bible. That's what it's there for. We will not shame you for doing so. Uh, it's a bit of an obscure Old Testament book. If you don't have a Bible, please just take the one, one of the black ones from the pew in front of you, and you'll find Lamentations chapter 1 on page 685 of the church Bibles. 685. We're beginning a new series uh, we'll take, Lord willing, the next five weeks to explore the book of Lamentations. And in a minute, I'll explain why Lamentations. Um, so what we'll do to get us started is we'll read the first four verses of Lamentations and then ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in His Word. And then we'll work our way through the entire chapter of Lamentations chapter 1. Here at PBC, we believe that the Bible is true. That every word of it is true, whether it is found in the Old Testament or the New, it is God's word inspired and given to his, his people. And that no matter how different the circumstance or situation that occasioned the book, uh, it has much to speak to us today. And so we find that to be the case in Lamentations, and it is to Lamentations now that we turn. Lamentations, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends who have dealt treacherously with her have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion... Mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding according to your word. Well, I thank you, Lord, that I have the privilege once more to shepherd your people through your word. I admit that I have nothing in me to offer them. So do for me as you have done so often in the past. Multiply loaves and fishes and feed your people. For this your word. You, yours are the words of eternal life. And so feed us now. And give us that life 
In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, let me set this up, the occasion of Lamentations. Picture in your mind, if you will, it's December, 589 B.C. Things in Jerusalem have gone from bad to worse. A man called Hilkiah, a priest, sits high on the walls of Jerusalem, facing east, watching the horizon as it darkens, not with storm clouds, but with a storm of a different kind, a far more deadly kind. The Babylonian army, led by the ruthless king Nebuchadnezzar II, snakes its way through the mountains toward Jerusalem. Long gone are the days of Hilkiah's hope, the days of the young king Josiah, who had commissioned a repair project of the temple and brought about reforms in Israel. It was Hilkiah himself who rediscovered the scripture. The priest remembers fondly, reading from the book of the law and watching the boy king under the grave conviction of sin tear his royal garments and resolve to bring about those reforms in the nation. It was the best of times. But that was years ago now. Josiah was long dead, killed in a pointless battle against Egypt. Hilkiah still felt the loss and disappointment of things that might have been. A string of puppets followed, sending their money to Egypt. But greater dangers than Egypt loomed in the east. The rising power of Nebuchadnezzar could not be stopped. The priest remembered the first invasion vividly. From the same seat on the wall, he watched as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and so many others were carried off like slaves to Babylon. And who knows what has become of them? That was 15, 16 years ago now. Hilkiah remembered the second invasion too, another trail of tears. King Jehoiakim was a fool for rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. But surrendering the city probably saved the lives of thousands. And Hilkiah was no fan of his new king, this Zedekiah. The old priest longed for the days of the prophets Nahum, Zephaniah, even Habakkuk. Relics of decades past, hardly heard or remembered today. Over and over, those prophets had, warmed, had warned Judah that if they didn't repent, this would happen, and now this is happening. At least Jeremiah is still with us, Hilkiah thought, but no one seems to listen to him either, certainly not the king. Hilkiah would climb the stairs to his perch and the city walls every day for the next 18 months. And he would watch the Babylonian hordes who blocked the entrance and exits to the city. Jerusalem was unable to defend herself. Nebuchadnezzar knew it. Zedekiah knew it. And so the Babylonians would simply wait them out. 
With no imports, all the food was gone. The people were starving. Disease was spreading. Some had turned to cannibalism. Hilkiah knew somehow that he would not survive this, Nebuchadnezzar's third invasion. In the summer of 587 BC, the Babylonians launched their attack and breached the city walls. Thousands would be killed. The army attempted to flee the city and take Zedekiah the king with them. But the Babylonians caught up with them easily. Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered Zedekiah's children right in front of him, then gouged out his eyes and led him away in chains, another trophy to his conquests. The temple which Solomon had built 400 years ago in all of its glory, which Josiah had renovated some decades ago, is now defiled, looted, burned, the city plundered. Fires had ravaged every home. Jerusalem was nothing, just smoldering ruins and rubble. Those who had survived starvation and slaughter were marched a thousand miles on foot back to Babylon, their third trail of tears. Only a few would be left behind in the ruined city. The prophet Jeremiah was one. The Book of Lamentations is a collection of five poems lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. We're not told who wrote the book. Traditionally, it is believed that the prophet Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. He probably did. But we're not told who wrote it. And so throughout this series, we'll refer to the author as simply the poet. Lamentations was written in Hebrew, and it is poetry. You read poetry differently than you read other types of genre. Its form is a part of its message. And some of this will be lost in translation. For example, four of the five chapters of Lamentations are written in the acrostic Acrostic meaning alphabetic, alphabetical. So each stanza, each line begins with a successive Hebrew letter. Hence, there are 22 verses in all of the chapters because there are 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. With the exception of chapter 3, which is 66 verses because the acrostic is tripled. It's put in an acrostic to sort of convey the idea that this is our suffering from A to Z. And because it is poetry, Lamentations has a meter. Most Hebrew poetry stresses three syllables reflexively with symmetrical halves. So one, two, three, three, two, one. Lamentations breaks with this meter and follows a different kind called Kina meter. It's Q-I-N-A-H, Kina meter, which shortens the second half. So one, two, three, three, two. Leaving an imbalance as if it's unfinished, as if someone is limping along. 
Lamentations follows a chiastic structure, which means that the, the high point of the poem comes in the middle, not at the end. Two and a half chapters of this book staircase up to the peak at the center of chapter three and then walks back down as the poem fades away. The center of the book is the hinge. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That much loved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is drawn, which we sang this last Lord's Day, it's drawn right from this book. A line from the song that we just sang, His mercy is more, is drawn from this book. There are two voices that speak throughout these poems. The first is that of the poet himself. He speaks sometimes as a, an objective observer of the situation that's going on. He speaks at other times as one sitting amidst the rubble, a sympathetic embodiment of the suffering of the people. The second voice that appears in these poems is that of the city herself, the city Jerusalem. She is personified as a woman, a widow who was once a princess. She is called Zion, or sometimes the daughter of Zion. Only those two voices appear in Lamentations. And noticeably missing is a third voice, the voice that we want to speak. God never speaks in the book of Lamentations. This is man wrestling with suffering. Offering his prayers, his protests, his complaints to God. And heaven is silent. And as we will see throughout this study, although heaven is silent, that does not mean that God is not involved or that God does not hear. This morning we will consider the first of the five poems in chapter 1. There are two parts to this poem. The first... In verses 1 to 11, the poet describes the calamity of Zion with just a couple of interruptions. And then in verse 12 to 22, the city, the Lady Zion, she speaks up and she describes the cry of Zion. So the calamity of Zion, the cry of Zion. And we'll save a couple of minutes at the end to draw out some helpful uses of Lamentations 1, for your sake. Here's the big idea this morning. Lament to God who hears us and uses our affliction to cause us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Lament, Christian, to God. Turn your pain into a prayer. And know that your God sees and your God hears. And he uses whatever affliction he has brought you into and will bring you out of. To shape you, to mold you, to wean you off of self-reliance. And on himself who raises the dead. 
Let's consider verses 1 to 4 one more time. The poet goes, I, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends who have dealt treacherously with her, they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. In his excellent little book on grief and lament, Mark, Pastor Mark Vrogop points, points out that no one taught you how to cry. Crying was the first noise you made when you came into this world. Everyone cries, but Christians lament. A lament is a protest against what is and what should be. It is putting language to the tension that we feel between what we see and what God has promised. Lament is a statement of faith. And we need lament. For many of you know objectively, many of you know personally that life will give us plenty of reasons to lament, to suffer, to endure affliction. Oh, the Lord knew this, Christian. And he gave you books of the Bible to help you, like the book of Lamentations. A full two-thirds of the Psalms are songs of lament. Two-thirds. These are rich resources for every sufferer. And so, Christian, you would do well to employ these scriptures in your own prayer life. As you protest against what is and what should be. Do you pray with your Bible open as Pastor Matt taught us earlier? Well, I hope you do. But it's a rich resource available to you. Turn to the Psalms in your affliction and in your suffering and in your sorrows and learn the language of lament. Now, the setting of the book of Lamentations may provide little parallels to our day, but there are principles and there are concepts in this book that are solid gold for anyone suffering. The middle point of this first poem, Lady Zion says, look, O Lord, and see. What a beautiful and helpful phrase for us when we're suffering. Look, O oh Lord, and see. And what does she want her Lord to see? Well, verse 1, the calamity of Zion. 
Notice what once was and what is. How lonely sits the city. Once it was full of people. Once she was a princess. Once she was married. But not now. Now she is desolate. The desolation of the city of Jerusalem is tragic. The desolation of any city is tragic, especially if it's your home city. Some of the images that we're receiving from Maui are just heartbreaking. They remind you of World War II bombed out cities. It does look like a war zone. Now it's maybe it's difficult, but maybe it's impossible for us 21st century Westerners to understand just what a devastation it would have been to those people in the 6th century BC to sit amongst the, ribble, the rubble of Jerusalem. For none of us have the same connection to any of our cities. You may love your city, and I hope you do. But not in the same way they would have in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their capital city. But more than that, it was the city of the king. But more than that, it was the city of David. But more than that, it was a city of great renown. A city of the promises of God. But more than all of that, it was the city that housed the temple of the living God. So not only was it the center of their entire country, it was the center of their entire religion. Limping along through the wreckage, the poet laments about what once was. Once the city was full of people, but now she's lonely. Once it was great, but now it is not. Once she was married to Yahweh, as it were, and now she is a widow. Once she was a princess, now she's a slave. Her lovers have left her. Her friends have betrayed her. Once she had a home and now she's in exile. Once she rested and now she can't find rest. Roadways to her city once heard happy songs of ascent, but now they're quiet because no one comes to see her. Her gates are broken down. The priests groan. The young women are afflicted. She is suffering bitterly. She is left with nothing. The good old days under Josiah, they're gone. And who knows if they'll ever return. And the poet laments. Next, we're shocked to learn who's to blame. Verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Notice, it is the Lord who has done it. The Lord has afflicted her because of her many sins. The suffering of Lady Zion is a judgment from the Lord. She has broken covenant with her God. She had turned from him to Worship the false gods of the nations. And for many years, the Lord in his mercy had sent prophets to warn her. And for many years, she had ignored them. And now she reaps what she has sown. The poet's description 
of Jerusalem's idolatry is graphic. Just a warning. Which should probably serve as another warning that's about to come. And this book can get rather graphic at times. Scripture is honest about what sin is and its effect on us. Verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold, my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people moan, groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. So here the poet scans the city and explains the thoughts of the people. Whatever pride she once had is now gone. Her precious things carried off. She's now mocked by her enemies. Verses 8 and 9 reveal something significant about the way that God views sin. Jerusalem sinned grievously and became filthy. Sin brings filth into our lives. It exposes us. It brings shame. Notice those who once honored her now are despised. They're despising her. They saw her nakedness. This carries echoes from the garden, doesn't it? As soon as the first man and first woman rebelled against God, they noticed that they were naked and hid. Sin exposes. It brings shame. She thinks about what she has done and she turns her face away in shame. And notice, too, the location of her uncleanness. It is in her skirts. Often in the Bible, idolatry and adultery are linked. And this is because God has married himself to his people. And when they are unfaithful to him, it is as if a wife is unfaithful to her husband. Verse 9, she gave no thought to her future or to her end. She lived in the moment, in the moment alone. What a fitting description of the experience of sin. And at the end of verse 9, the Lady Zion interrupts the poet. 
Notice in your Bible the quotation marks there. She calls upon the Lord to look and to see her affliction. And then the poet explains, Babylon has taken away her precious things. A a reference to looting of the temple, perhaps. Her city is ruined. The temple is desecrated. There's no food left. All her people are groaning for bread. They're trading treasures just to have a morsel of food. And she interjects again. And she calls upon the Lord to see. And it is at this point in the poem where Lady Zion takes over the narrative. And things go into the first person. With one interruption, one explanation, one commentary from the poet. But the rest of this chapter is the lady explaining in her own words, in her own thoughts, what has been going on and what it means. So let's keep reading. This is the cry of Zion. Verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descent. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things, I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Her sorrow is inflicted upon her by her God. He has set the fire. He has set the trap. He has turned her back. He has left her stunned. He gave her over to all of her transgressions. Note, he took all of her transgressions and formed them into a yoke, the thing that they used to put on oxen to keep them going together, that big weight that was around their neck. God took all of her transgressions and with them formed a yoke and laid them upon her neck. He caused her strength to fail. He gave her into the hands of her conquerors. He conquered all her defenders, or he rejected all her defenders, and then sent all of her conquerors. He trod her down like grapes in a wine press. And she is weeping bitterly, her eyes flowing with tears. And then the poet comments in verse 17. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Lady Zion, the poet says, has been looking for comfort from someone, from anyone, and she is alone. The Lord has commanded her enemies against her. He calls He calls his people Jacob, the name of one of the patriarchs who often serves as a stand-in for the whole nation. 
Back in verse 8, Jerusalem, remember, became filthy because of her sin. But notice here in verse 17, she has become the filth of her sin. The lady then finds her voice again in verse 18. Let's pick up reading verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves, and the house is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many. And my heart is faint. Now to her credit, Lady Zion rightly recognizes that it was the Lord who afflicted her and he was right to do so. As she had rebelled against his word and she had ignored his prophets, that he sent to call her to repentance and had she repented, she would have been spared all this. But she ignored their calls. In the second half of verse 18, she takes on an instructive role. Did you notice? Listen up, all you people, all you readers. Look at my suffering. Let this be a lesson to you. When I rejected my God's warnings, look what happened. When I turned to all of my lovers, they deceived me. The gods to whom she had turned, indeed the idols with whom she had prostituted herself, had deceived her. But of course they had. They have nothing to offer. They're idols. The priests, the elders couldn't help her because like her, they're creatures too. They're starved for a lack of food themselves. Now note the contrast that's being made here between God, who is her only help, and everyone else. Idols offer nothing. They're chunks of dead trees. They're lifeless rocks. They're dependent upon the constant care of the fools who worship by them. Idols don't give, they take. They're statues. They have to be fastened down lest a strong wind blow them over. Men can offer her nothing because they're men. She can't even help herself. And so she must turn to the one who depends on no one, the one who depends on nothing. She needs the one who made the world and everything in it. She needs the one who does not live in temples made by man. She needs the one who is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. She needs the uncreated one, the unsustained sustainer, the unmoved mover. She needs God. And PBC, what I want you to see 
is that Lady Zion is us. For like her, we have lived in the moment. We have looked to created things to give us what only God can give. Like her, we have turned from God and turned to idols. Like her, we have ignored the warnings of the prophets. And like her, we have been filthy because of our sin. Now, of course, none of us in this room have ever offered animals and vegetables to a wooden statue and prayed for rain. But we have looked for acceptance and approval from success in business or success in relationships or even success in church. We have turned success, however we define it, into a little deity, offering it our time and our money, expecting that it would give us security and validation. And how different is that from bowing down to an idol of gold, silver, or stone? Our idols may be intangible, but they are no less controlling. And God sees, and God knows. And God would be just to lay the penalty of this sin upon us as he did Lady Zion. And had he done so, we would must say, as she said, the Lord is right in doing this, for I have rebelled against his word. But there is a major difference between Lady Zion and Lady PBC. What she saw in a shadow, we have in substance. She could not see through the smoke of her own ruin, but we can. In Lamentations 1, it appears that God has abandoned his people. But we have the advantage of time, and we know he hadn't. That the people of God would be redeemed. That the people of God would be restored. But how? How would she be restored? How would she be redeemed? Would she clean up her act? Would she forsake worshiping idols? Would she become greater than the Babylonians? Well, the Babylonians would be gobbled up by the Persians, who would then be gobbled up by the Greeks, who would then be gobbled up by the Romans. And Israel never became greater than any of those nations. So it's not her greatness that delivered her. Her redemption would come through a man from Nazareth, upon whose sinless neck the yoke of every sin was laid once and for all. Our transgressions were bound into a yoke, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, bore that yoke in his body on the cross. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He burned in the fires of God's judgment. He was bound to a wooden cross. He was struck and bruised and left weak and alone. The Lord gave him over to the enemy. He suffered the mocking and abuse that we deserved. That's how redemption comes. So friend, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you are here so that you would heed the advice of Lady Zion. And look upon her and see the effect of rebelling against God. And should you, dear friend, suffer any different fate, turn to Jesus Christ today and repent and receive the full forgiveness of your sins. Before you leave here today, talk with one of the pastors 
Talk with one of the members and tell them you would like to have your sins forgiven. And they'll pray with you and tell you more about Jesus Christ, his mercy, and life everlasting. If you are a Christian, having been united to Christ, the right, just judgment of God for your sin has already been suffered. In Christ, your sin has already been judged. The penalty is already paid. And so that means, dear Christian, that you will never in this life or the next suffer the judgment of God for your sin. Jesus did that for you in your place. He suffered the fate of Lady Zion on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to. Now, some of us relate to Lady Zion and that we look upon the shameful things that we have done in our past and we can hardly bear to look very long. Well, you need to know that the Lord sees those things too and He moves toward them. You move away, He moves toward. He chose you despite those things and he peeled away every layer of shame and wrapped them around his son who went into the grave and killed it. And having been united to him, you were united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And so now you stand before God without a speck of shame, wrapped in the bright glowing robes of the righteousness of Christ. You see, in Jesus, Lamentations 1 gets reversed. The lonely city gets filled again as the church of the living God with people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation come. The widow becomes a bride to Christ, the slave of sin is set free and made a princess once more. The weeping is gone. The victorious Christ wipes away every tear. And this is why we need lamentations. Three reasons as we close. Three reasons we need lamentations. And the first is... Lamentations, with its alphabetical structure, is a walk through suffering. Lamentations teaches us to keep walking. This makes it eminently useful for Christian when you suffer. Keep walking. Oh, you may be limping, but keep walking. Because one day, very soon, you will cross this tumultuous sea and you will land on that celestial shore as Millie did last week and you will be a full-fledged member of a land without sin, without suffering, without shame, without devastation, without disease, without decay. So the first lesson from Lamentations 1 is to keep walking. And the second is to remember God's grace and to rely upon the Lord. Not all of our suffering comes from our sins. Lady Zion's suffering came because of her sins. And we may suffer from our sins, but not all of our suffering is a result of our sin. It is not a punishment. Remember, Christ has already taken our place. So suffering for sin, 
suffering in the life of a believer is different. If it's not for our sin, then what is it for? Well, Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. So sometimes the suffering we endure is a discipline from the Lord. Not a punishment, but a discipline. The Lord corrects us, chastens us, makes us into his pure and spotless bride because he loves us. The author of Hebrews wrote that in the moment, discipline is painful, but later it reveals, yields the fruit of righteousness. One of the most helpful passages of Scripture for this point is 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 8 and 9. If you get a chance this afternoon, spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, Paul is describing the effect of affliction in his own life. He and some of his fellow ministers had some affliction that they experienced in Asia, and this is how he describes it. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This affliction was so heavy, we thought it was going to kill us. But, Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul understood that it was the Lord who brought him into this affliction, that the Lord was sustaining him through this affliction, and that this affliction was being used by God to shape him and mold him, to wean him off of self-reliance, and to take hold of God-reliance. The Lord uses affliction to cause us not to rely on ourselves, but to trust into Him, and to turn us to Him in faith. Because Christian, in the light of eternity, there is something better than the absence of suffering, and that is the presence of God-wrought faith. Where light momentary afflictions will be, not might be, if you are in Christ, will be. These light momentary afflictions will become an eternal weight of glory. Finally, Lamentations gives us a voice to our pain, a way for us to verbalize our protest. And it is a protest. For what is, isn't what should be. And it isn't what will be. And that makes it a statement of faith that what I see in this fallen world, miscarriages, isn't what should be. Infertility isn't what should be. And so we protest. God, make it right. Our sight may be blurred by our tears, but Christian, we are not moved by what we see, nor by what we feel, but by what God has promised. And through our blurry sight, we know on the other end, God will be faithful, for great is your faithfulness.
So read Lamentations. Study Lamentations. And in your reading and in your studying, acquire the language of lament. Look, O Lord, and see. And turn your pain into prayer. And know that God sees. Let's pray. Look, O Lord, and see. Father, we confess to you that you would have been just in laying our sins upon us, leaving us to our shame and in the wreckage that we have made of our lives. But in your mercy, you have laid the penalty of our sins on your Son. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Our lives are yours. We lay them before you, and you may use them in any way that pleases you. For we are unworthy servants, only doing what we ought to have done. Please give us grace when suffering and affliction come. And may we lay our hand upon our mouths before we speak a word against your providence. You are good. You're so good. Your ways are not our ways. And so teach us, O Lord, to trust you through whatever season you carry us through. Give us the language of lament to verbalize our protest and verbalize our pain to turn to you. Teach us to lay all matters of our concern at your feet. And as often as our unbelief wants to keep picking it back up, help us to lay it back down. And to trust that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will bring us through this fire purged of the impurities to be that spotless bribe deserving of our master. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Today's assurance of pardon comes from 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 18. Here we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit.